Hi there, welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Darren Burgess, the High Performance Manager of the Melbourne Football Club. Prior to working at Melbourne, Darren was the Director of Performance at the Arsenal Football Club, High Performance Manager at Port Adelaide Football Club, Head of Conditioning at the Liverpool, and Head of Fitness at the Football Federation of Australia. Before we start episode 48, the Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is to empower as many athletes and staff as possible by providing practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and by subscribing to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Thanks for jumping on, guys. Remember to, if you have any questions for Darren, hit the question button at the bottom of your screen where you can post through some questions that we'll get to at a later time. Bear with me. I'll just send my invite over to Darren to join us. G'day, Darren. Hey, Jack. I'm well, mate. Thanks for jumping on. Fantastic. We'll, we'll dive straight in, mate. Let's uh, start at the very beginning. At what age did you realize you had a passion for working in elite sport? I think, like most kids, you just play a lot of sport growing up. I wasn't quite good enough, so I thought the next best thing you know in terms of making it in sport would be to try and work in sport somehow so yeah this is this is what i decided to do there weren't too many people doing this type of degree when when i was going through it so it was a bit unique and much to the frustration of my parents because they didn't see many jobs there my sister was a teacher my brother was an accountant so you know there's plenty of jobs there so but yeah here i am yeah it worked out it was a good good decision uh, an enjoyable one with it so you mentioned it, it wasn't a common career choice at the time did you know of S&C's when you chose to do the degree did someone guide you to that course or was it purely on your instinct that you knew of no one I think the course was only around for maybe a year and a half two years before uh-huh. I went there and I, I enrolled it was Bachelor of Exercise Science at Union New South Wales I enrolled in order to do a to be a PE teacher that was my I thought okay I'll do three years of this degree and then do a dip ed and so yeah I think we were maybe the second or third cohort to go through. okay yeah, I remember speaking to a couple of football coaches where they used to call the, the fitness guys the phys editors. Yeah, yeah, so, that's uh, nice. I think famously, yeah, the previous CEO of the AFL called us all phys editors, which, yeah, wasn't uh, Mr. Demetrio, which wait, but okay. uh, uh, I, I, Honestly, well, this thing gets a bit, gets a, people get a bit excited about the titles thing, but I don't really care. We know what job we do and that's fine. Absolutely. And did you have some strong influences once you got, once you did the degree and, and started working in the field? Do you have some people that have helped you along your journey? Parents mostly helped me along because there wasn't any necessarily people going through at the same, uh, people going through at the same time. There wasn't anybody in the field that I sort of aspired to be because there wasn't much of a field, which is showing my age a little bit. Early on, a gentleman by the name of John Marsden from the Sydney Academy of Sport, he was sort of my first boss, I guess, in this field. And there were some pioneers before me, guys like Anthony Creer, who were in the Australian soccer ruse job and those sorts of things that, that, that were probably my most, that's what they're the jobs that I wanted anyway, whether those people inspired me or not, but that's kind of what I, what I wanted to do. I was reasonably obsessed with soccer and, and getting into soccer at that stage in terms of fitness in soccer. So yeah, anybody in that sort of space, yeah, I was, I was pretty keen on emulating. I sent, uh, I've told this story before, but I sent 93 letters, handwritten letters to Premier League, First Division, it wasn't Premier League at the time, but first to fourth division clubs in England. I got three back, three rejections back, and 88, uh, what it, I couldn't be bothered replying. But yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to be. So, And what did the role look like at, at those Division One 
clubs? Is it full time then, part time? I had a, I had no idea. Honestly, I had no idea who was in there. There wasn't like you couldn't Google it or anything like that. I, I yeah. just sent a letter saying, listen, if there's a fitness job there, I'm your guy. Even though I was sort of second year at uni and I, no idea what I was doing really, but uh, probably. I worked in Pizza Hut and did some personal training and that probably paid for the stamps that I had to had to buy to get overseas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that would resonate with a lot of developing SNCs listening in that, you know, putting yourself out there uh, is really important, but also having that, being a, you've got to make an income, don't you, while you're studying. So, well, what were you, what did you mention there? Personal training and, and Pizza Hut was what, yeah. Had yeah, you paid your way? Did Pizza Hut. Yeah, delivered pizzas. Worked in a in a gym in Bankstown in Sydney, basically telling the clients how to cycle their steroids, and <laughs> that, that was the sort of gym it was. But yeah, and and personal training, which was I was a bit of a failure at, but I enjoyed it because it was outdoors and early mornings, late afternoons. But it just it used to really sort of, uh, if I can say, shit me when uh, when people didn't turn up. You know, if it was raining, they wouldn't turn up, or if they'd had a late night, they wouldn't turn up. And I just thought, no, this is not for me. I don't have the patience for people who aren't committed. Yeah. And what was your first role in sport? Uh, my first role, I, I, I did my honours at Uni New South Wales and, and got a conference and got really lucky and got asked to be a sort of third string fitness coach for the Sydney Swans. And at the same time, I was helping coach a Waverley Cricket Club and uh, Greg was came on board, ex-test cricketer for those folk who were listening in. And he said, yeah, can you, can you be the fitness coach because I'm going to captain coach? And I said, yep, no problem. Um, so that, that sort of combination. So the Swans for sort of 20 hours a week. And uh, basically my job was to run around Sydney, find a place for them to run, go on long runs across, you know, Cronulla Beach and up around DY because most of the Swans players didn't come from Sydney. So yeah, that, that was my first job really to look after the people. And every Saturday morning we'd get, take a long run through the city. Yeah. Okay. And, and how many years did you do that for before progressing on to your next role? Yeah, I was with the Swans for four years in, in various roles. Then a full-time job came up with them and, and I got overlooked for it, um, which was fair enough. And from there, I went uh, and did some lecturing at Australian Catholic University. That was full-time. And while I did that, I got probably you know one of my most influential early jobs with Parramatta Power in the old National Soccer League in the last couple of years in the National Soccer League. And the coach hired yep. me and then went to Greece for basically the 12 weeks of the preseason, literally hired me and said, by the way, I'm going to Greece, you've got the preseason. So it was myself and Manfred Schaefer, who was a very old ex-legend of Australian football. They literally had to organise everything and we had a full-time kit man and we had these professional players and it was well and truly thrown in the deep end, but absolutely loved it, learnt so much and had, had some brilliant players and had a ball, had an absolute ball. It was hard because I was driving from North Sydney to Parramatta and uh, yeah, it was tough. Lived in Cronulla, so I did the full sort of triangle around. So absolutely loved it. There was a fair bit of travel involved and there wasn't a lot of support in the role. So No, no support. Yeah, heaps of travel, no support. And But I absolutely loved it. I learned so much because I was designing the skill components of training, the fitness components, doing all the video analysis. I'd be at home in front of the VCR just taking notes. And yeah, I used a software called Track Performance, which was so horribly um, inaccurate, but that was all that was around at the time. Yeah, had an absolute ball. Loved it. And worked with some some you know, some socceroos and some great players. It was great. Yeah, and, and was it the the component of the fact that you didn't have a lot of support that you sort of thrived in that environment where you could be the generalist and, and it was all put on you to, to manage all these different roles? Was that something that you 
that you already knew about yourself until before that role or did it something you sort of discovered? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good question, Jack. I, I absolutely just, I didn't know. And it was it was literally a necessity because there was no one else around. Like you'd look around and go, right, who can take this, this session? And the, I was it. And these were, the, they were the only professional players in the country at the time and uh, organising pre-season friendlies in North Queensland and camps in Gold Coast and, you know, just... And then, okay, what, what are we doing? Joe, what are we doing? And, you know, Simon Colosimo and Ante Milicic and Fernando Reck and super Australian talent. And I'm saying, all right, well, we're going to play 4-4-2 today and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. It was, yeah, it was good fun, but hard work. But probably learnt the most in that. Yeah, yeah. And, and how did you how did you come up with the drills and how, did, how would you plan the skills component to it and then even also the video analysis like did you have experience in, in that side uh, do you know what i back in those days i would order a whole lot of dvds and books mainly from the u.s on on football soccer drills like every single book that came out on top drill you know the ajax academy and things like that and, and i would just use those and i would just pour through these books and and dvds and every day you check the mail for a new book to come in to try and get some new ideas and uh, because this is 2002 2001 2002 before all of that sort of information excuse me so readily available in the on the internet so um, that was the and main so you, way that i did it and you were doing the the, the drills from tactical sort of skill development point of view opposed to sort of condition yeah yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Trying to do, trying to do both. Yeah, uh, and how do you feel like that shaped you as you into your career now, like that that role? Oh, I think it made me appreciate work ethic and and the work that goes into that sort of a role, and it also forced me to be a good communicator with players, develop good relationships with players, me to sort of uh, get the importance of players trusting you. Because these, these guys were trusting me with their careers, you know, they were, some of them were, were at the end of it, but a lot of them were at the beginning of their, you know, their European careers, potential European careers and things like that. So it really made me appreciate, like I said, a work ethic and be the complete picture rather than just, okay, I'm going to take the warm up and the running at the end. But this sort of taught me how to build a session, build a plan, build a week, build. It. And, you know, you didn't do it on Excel. I had a Mac classic at the time that I just wrote notes on whatever word processing program was on there at the time. So, yeah, and that, that's, and I just went back to the, the same notes the next year. So even though the coach kind of threw me in the deep end, it was, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you learned some huge lessons that can take a long time to, to sort of gain, you know, both in yourself with self-awareness, but also what's effective and what's the, what's really important in terms of performance. Yeah. And, and I agree. I think had I just, just been the fitness coach or just done the warm ups, uh, you take a whole lot longer to develop those, you know, to develop those relationships and those skills. So yeah, I agree. I think they used to call it uh, in the initial stage, the Parramatta Power Athletics Club. And yeah. because a lot of my drills were athletics based and then I just went, no, this isn't working. I, I need to, I need to bring the ball in and I need to, to be more football savvy. And yeah. And so it was a really good crash, crash course. Do you think for, for listening, developing S&Cs, would, is it coaching a junior team? Is it, you know, cutting your teeth by being the skills coach for Jack? Sports? Absolutely. I'm interrupting you because I'm really passionate about it, mate. You have to go and coach your own team. You just have to. And when I say coach, I mean if you can coach them from a skills point of view or go and be the fitness coach for your local team and you won't get any money, you might get a tracksuit, but you just get these life lessons and skill lessons, you know, coaching skill, coaching nuance lessons that, you know, I fear for 
people who do their internship at an AFL club or an NRL club and then only want a job in that league at that club in their local professional club, you just won't be as good, in my opinion, won't be as good a practitioner if you don't get those life lessons of standing up and men, women, boys, girls, and, and just say, right, here's what we're going to do today. Do you know what? It's raining. I'm going to have to change it. Do you know what? It's too windy. I can't do that soccer volleyball drill because the ball's flying all over this. Um, you know what? I read about this drill that Chelsea do, but the Paramount of Power don't have the skill to do it because the ball keeps going mm. out. So what am I going to do? You know, just those little things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't get unless you sat in front of your own group. Yeah, great. That's such a powerful message. And not only like what you mentioned, the, the story before where you were at Sydney Swans, so that the foot was in the door there four years full, you know, part-time, you'd imagine, yep, here I go, I'm going to get my full-time contract, but you're actually told no, and then, you know, move on to the next one. So yeah, it's not like if you get an internship at a footy club, it means that a full-time job's a matter of time. No. Yeah, I didn't get my first full-time job till I was 29, I reckon. And I was into about a dozen jobs that I'd applied and didn't get a different different jobs, different roles, schools, you know, corporate organisations doing health and wellness, those sorts of things just got continually turned down. And what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the, in the industry in the last sort of 20 years? I think the specialist positions, uh, some real changes. You know, when you have a specialist nutritionist, specialist strength coach, specialist power, specialist acceleration, sprint coach, those sorts of things. They certainly weren't. My first full-time job was was with Port Adelaide in end of 2004, and it was myself and a strength coach dealing with 45 players. And um, yeah, now when I left Port in 2017, we had an amazing, and they still have an amazing high-performance team. And there was probably you know 10 full-time members dealing with the same number of athletes in the same competition, more or less. So. The growth of the specialists, um, the athletes know a lot more. The, the players that I work with know a lot more and a lot more curious. It's, it's important that you're on top of your game and on top of knowledge almost daily. A player will come in and say, I read this, I, I heard this, I saw that. I think I've just seen a few of them float up on this on this live feed, so they'll know tomorrow at work. So, it, yeah, they, they know a lot more, so you've got to be on your game. Coaches know a lot more. So, yeah, you just have to be well-researched and and. And then the, the final thing is, well, probably the, the two last things, technology has improved and it's massively influential on what we do, whether that's monitoring players on the field, in the gym, while they're sleeping, resting. We have access to a lot more information. And the final thing is a mental game. That's probably the thing that I've learned the most about in the last five or six years. And I've actively tried to research on the influence of you know, the brain on performance. And why the last sort of five or six years, was there a trend that you started to see or is that an area that you see competitive, like you can get a competitive edge in that space? Certainly the the trend, when I joined, I was lucky enough to get the Socceroos job in sort of 2007, late 2007, and then worked with them all the way through the World Cup in South Africa, which was, was probably the highlight of my career so far. Those players who were able to travel from Europe to Australia, play on a Saturday for Everton, say Tim Cahill or Lucas Neal, and then come and play for Australia on a Wednesday night and then go back and play for Everton. And even though what I was reading in research was, no, you can't do that. You need four days to acclimatise. You need four nights sleep to get into time zones. And I thought, oh, these guys love playing for their country. They want to play for their country. And I'd get all the physical data and it'd be the same in all three games. I just think, holy hell, there's something else going on here. And it mm. was just that mental ability to push through. 
what was happening physically and what their body was being put through. So that sort of woke me up to the fact that there's a, there's a few more things than your ability to do a 3K or an AMS program or, or whatever it might be. And what what areas of, of whether it be like mental skills or, or games or, or activities that are elite athletes doing that for those that are not are aware, like what's the sort of regime? Is it, like you said, curiosity, how important is that in terms of the mental game and, and what are some things that athletes are doing nowadays to improve in this area? Certainly the sports psychologists that we're fortunate enough to work with now are far more skilled at this than I am. So I'm talking about, a, you know, I'm a relative outsider. So they certainly have access to performance psychology and performance psychiatry. And I've been lucky enough to work with two on the planet in this space and learned so much from. So I think it'd be sort of remiss of me not to say that their access to more professional services. The things that we try and do is just vary things up to keep things fresh, keep things surprising for them because the games that I'm, I've mainly, which is soccer and I have constantly changing, constantly, you know, they're dynamic sports. So you cannot possibly succeed if you're not prepared for a little bit of uncomfortableness and unpredictability. So in order to mentally prepare for that, we try and make training that way as much as possible. And that's something that I've over a long period of time. So that would, you know, if you have a, let's say, a meeting for main training session, could there be you and the and the head coach sort of sort of spring something on the playing group that the, the drill changes or yeah, absolutely then... never tell them how many you know running sets they're doing and just just things like that and we change things all the time particularly in preseason um, in season I think it's players know what's coming and when but preseason there wouldn't be a sort of a day or a week certainly not a week go by where we wouldn't change something up yeah it can be pretty frustrating for players and staff but. Yeah, I think it's for the greater good, hopefully. That makes a lot of sense. Like you said, it's such a dynamic game, so to be able to think quick on your feet. and So that won't just be conditioning, it's also skills, the tactical side of things will come in as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the coaches will do things from, you know, be shocking umpires or referees to challenge yeah. them mentally in that space. How do you handle it when you're, you know, when you're on the wrong end of umpiring calls, which we all have been from time. It will be literally just changing the game, changing the rules. So in, in football, so it might be two touch to one touch to, you know, just constantly changing. You back chatted, you go on a 10-minute run, two teams got to play with nine men um, or women in that time. You know, just, just different things like that. Even if the player didn't back chat, no, you're off. You know, those sorts of things just to constantly change the environment and, and constantly challenge. We've done things in the past which say over the top, but give them tactical questions while they're running. You know, give them mathematics questions that they have to answer while you know in between sets of running, just to keep challenging their their mind while they're while they're working. I had to look most of them up, of course. Fantastic. And what are some other for the developing footballers listening in? And what are some other key areas of, of focus for for a developing footballer? I know it's a broad question, but what are some key takeaways that you think yeah, about footballs? I think the two most important things are resilience and skill and not necessarily in that order so if, if we're talking develop, developing afl footballers skill is king it always will be no matter what people like me say your ability to, in particular and to to work below your knees will always be king so uh, yeah that I, I have to say that and that's that's the absolute truth but developing your body to be resilient to the demands of the sport absolutely crucial and everybody probably who's listening into this knows people who uh, haven't made it because they've been injured or been a bit lazy or uh, those sorts of things and uh, yeah so develop that resilience in your body and that's both strength and and to a lesser extent aerobic capacity but just your ability to repeat efforts 
on multiple days a week is just massive. And for the young footballers that you see coming in, like the first-year players, both at Port and Melbourne, are there common trends that you see that are like gaps in their physical side that need to be topped up pretty quickly? Yeah, I think the biggest gap that I've seen in the last two years since I've been back is the nutritional awareness. I think that's that's the impact that nutrition can have on is is as we know is massive and I think they're just a bit naive with that and that that would be the biggest thing that I've noticed since coming back from the UK is is the players take a little bit of time to to get into into good habits in that space okay and what would be some of the the examples of is it changing breakfast or is it eating more vegetables or common it could be really simple things like like fruit and vegetables but it's more in the periodization of your of your food so you know during heavy loading weeks you can eat a little bit more but during light weeks excuse me most players particularly young players will consume the same amount and i think that's that's an issue because you know you end up consuming too many calories and so it's not a very technical area it's often not a very sexy area but it can have a huge impact on your performance i think the other thing that i would work on is i've got a a 10 year old boy and if he decides that he wants or or my my nine-year-old daughter if they decide that they want to play sport and go after it then mobility would be another area that i would really try and focus them on it sort of from age sort of 14 15 once they're getting the to the end of their peak height velocity and their, their peak maturation i'd be really working hard on that because that's just so key for resilience and injury prevention okay and, and what drills would be your go-to for for improving their mobility yeah i think it, it's trying to put them in as many different unpredictable environments as possible there's sort of two aspects of mobility for me there's the the in-game mobility where you can just escape a situation it's no secret that uh, i'll use south american soccer players see two or three people around them the good and just find a solution to get out of it because they've been playing street football and futsal uh, growing up so they just have the lateral movement it's not done through gym. It's not done through personal trainers. It's done through just repeat exposure to many different situations. And then there's the mobility that you can do when you're away from the sport. And that, that's where people like you or me can help them with uh, a lot of flexibility type exercises, dynamic movements, um, making sure that they're, you know, things like Eldoa poses and uh, yoga Pilates, those sorts of things that a little less than the static stretches that I used to do, you know, just leg on the fence, those sorts of things. Uh, I'm talking about some real movement-based flexibility that I think can have a massive impact. And, and I certainly neglected that in the early part of professional career. A playing career, I was never good enough to need it, but um, a professional career for sure. And well, on the on the note that you said that lateral ability and ability to get out of awkward situations, so the, the, the small side of games is something that you're famous for. And you, it sounds like you got from that early role with, with Parramatta was something where you sure. developed that skill set. How did how did it go when you implemented that into AFL footy? Yeah, it's something we did early days. Then. Early with with Port Adelaide that that maybe wasn't been doing wasn't being used much, and I, I literally stole it straight from soccer. The the question that was asked heavily and is still being asked is oh, but it doesn't look like exactly like footy. Like we don't want to necessarily put that handball over the top or we don't want to necessarily have our players do that movement or that movement. But what I've found is without question, the different versions of small-sided games that you can implement into footy help players get out of traffic so easily, in my opinion. And there's a couple of soccer players on this call and people who work overseas on this call. The agility and lateral movement of even average league soccer players is so much better and sharper than some of the best AFL players 
because we're so used to working in straight lines in AFL and sometimes we're a bit scared of the lateral movement because of the, you know, the pubic overload and things like that. But if you get players young enough and condition them mm. for it, then it, it will just pay you back in spades once you get to more competitive, intense situations because you just have the, the resources at your disposal in the, in the way of strong hips, strong core to get out of situations. So again, if I'm working with young people, it's repeat exposure to those scenarios, both on and off the, the field, I should say, yeah. which is soccer term field. Yeah, it's such an interesting point. Like the, it seems to be a trend amongst this chat that I'm having with you here that, you know, we rather than saying in our lane and being that specialist sort of view, looking at what's what's the most important thing and if you can replicate the, and get that at an earlier age, like would you say playing a small-sided game at an early age and getting conditioned to do a volume of that, like the street ball with the kids in soccer, is, you know, better than well, not bench reduction in Copenhagen's and, and Nordics and stuff obviously have their place, but if you can be doing building that resilience, as you mentioned earlier, that will set you up for a longer career in handling those loads yeah. you can do in the gym. Yeah, one thing I learned the Socceroos through to the time at Liverpool was when you came up against South American players who were incredibly thick and between sort of their belly button and the top of their kneecaps, they were just, and they'd never done gym. Like we recruited some players, some really famous, you know, great players at Liverpool. We'd never seen them, but just were stockier than your stockiest AFL player um, who'd, who'd grown up in a sort of gym-centric environment. So uh, there's more than one way to get that that strength through your hips and, and core. And again, if I had a under-16 team, if, you know, Tasmania came into the AFL and they started at 16 years old, then that's what I would be targeting really early on. And you might get a few injuries early, but over time, they would develop that robustness and that ability to to move laterally and get out of situation, for sure. It's something that pops up for mind, for, you know, while the AFLW space is developing with a lot of ACL injuries, yes, yep. could be something sure. that would be implemented to help prevent. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so that's that's a couple of really good takeaways for, for, for kids, particularly play more footy if you want to. Absolutely, absolutely. And play yeah. different sports too. You know, there's a study I tweeted, been on Twitter much in the last little bit, but I put out a study, retweeted a study yesterday or the day before that, you know, just shows time and time again that talented kids don't always grow to be talented adults in that sport. Mm. So mix the sport up a bit. You know, mix the movement. That's where you know people like yourself and 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 other great um, people practitioners in this space can really get an edge and do get an edge. Uh, and that's by exposing kids, even though parents or coaches or in some in some cases agents want them to be good at footy. Yep, that's fine. But go and play a few other sports while you're there. Yeah, the going back to the mindset element. So some of these gun players that you've worked with, both in soccer and football, they're physical or more mental trend that you've seen amongst those players like when you meet a player interview a player for the first time you can tell oh they've got something yeah on the pitch their training intensity repeatedly is always a standout there are i can't think of anybody that i've been lucky enough to work with maybe one famous german player from arsenal who who probably didn't raise like constant training intensity and he's he's absolutely world class but every other player had the training intensity so the leap from training to game wasn't it wasn't as big as what it is for others in terms of when you meet them it's that two things it's the curiosity to learn more and to ask a lot of questions about their own performance and their own game not necessarily the team did probably here whatever so that curiosity and then there's that that inner drive so it's 
you know, what you should do is you should maybe try some cryotherapy or you should try some float tank work or you should try some breathing exercise. Okay, where do I go? What, what do I need to do? Rather than maybe you should try some float tank. Yeah, but that's on the other side of town. That's 30 bucks. And yeah, so uh, is there anything else? That, that's the differentiator there. The, those ones that just have that inner drive and, you know, nothing's too difficult. As one, one of our players, I was in the gym this morning before seven o'clock and two of our Melbourne Demons guys, you know, our most, you know, well-respected and best players were in from 7 a.m., 7.45, just working on touch by themselves with, you know, with one of the assistant coaches from 7 to 7.45 in the morning and just working on touch and that's just outstanding from them and that's why they're at the top of their game. And of those three, like the intensity on the pitch and, and curiosity and the, in the inner drive, in your experience, how much of it is trainable? How much can you change? Yeah, it's a million-dollar question. I think I think the curiosity can come a bit later. Initially, it might not be there because you're just young and do whatever you're told. So that can come. The intensity on the pitch can come, but the inner drive is probably developed through early childhood, through whatever parents, genetics, can be trauma in childhood. You know, those sorts of things give that inner drive. It's pretty hard to implant that someone. That's just my opinion. And it, so for, for those that want to improve their intensity to match their match intensity, what would be an example of a chat that you'd have with a player to, to do that? From I, I use objective information as much as I can. And in the early days, that was video. So there might be, a, in footy, it might be a turnover and you're just jogging back and you just show that to the players and you might show them and I've recorded stuff from TV. So in the in the early days when I was with the Swans and, you know, West Coast were pretty successful and then when I was with Port and, you know, Hawthorne were pretty successful, you would often show them the clips of the good players and this is what they do, both defensive and offensive. Nowadays I can use GPS and I can show them, okay, to use Melbourne Demons, Ed Langdon does. This is why he's so incredible and just turns up in, in defensive 50 all the time to help out our defenders. And I can just show them the, the GPS trace and GPS numbers for someone like him. And, and we post them all so the players all know. So, it, you know, there's no hiding now. So, yeah, in terms of training intensity, uh, the players get all that information so they know if they're close to matching. We rank them. And and with the curiosity side of things, is that something that you present on in a large group? Is it just things you sort of drip feed books to players? How do you go about developing yeah. players' curiosity? I've done all of the above, but I, I really like just sending them links to podcasts or articles or websites and just say just check this out and i've got 43 players the d's and if we get 20 reading it clicking on it which is probably about what we get you know you, you would think it's somewhere around 50 percent, hopefully more then that's a win if i got four doing it i'd still do it because it's it's worthwhile and uh, if it can facilitate that sort of curiosity it's great and fortunately for me i, I work with some amazing staff so between all of us we're constantly sort of saying to the player, did you read that? Did you see that article that Marcus Bontempelli does this? Uh, maybe we could try that or that, you know, player does this for their recovery. Maybe we should try that. Yeah, throughout our whole club, we're, we're trying to facilitate that as much as possible. Yep. Well, I've got, I'll hand over a couple of questions from the guys that have been watching. Um, this one's from an S&C. How can I be more desirable S&C coach after I graduate? They're in their final year. I reckon you might answer this. Uh, about earlier? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Coaching your own team. I'm interviewing at the moment for, for a position within the club and it's a it's a PhD position, so academic component. But what I looked for in the many applicants that we got was who's coached, who's coached their own team. And 
we had one who made the final three who's coached a high school team, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah, coach your own team as well as getting the qualifications. Yep. This one, who's the most genetically gifted athlete you have coached? I would say Gavin Wanganeen in the old days. He just did things with so little training that I've not seen before. From a strength, power, endurance, mobility, skill point of view, he was just a freak in the soccer world, the most genetically gifted from an athletics point of view was Fernando Torres. His running style was just magnificent to watch. From a playing ability point of view, probably Mesut Ozil. He was just great to watch. He was on the field that, that I've not seen. Mesut Ozil from, from Arsenal. He was just, yeah, just incredible to watch. This one is from a football player. What exercises should be good to do a day before a game? Stretching, activation, weights. It's a bit of a yeah, pre-game routine. Yeah, so day before a game, I, I like players to actually get out and move and move fast. So, you know, the day before any sort of game to get some intensity. And I think that's more neurally than, than, than physically, I guess, or structurally, I should say. So uh, include some sprint work, include some plyometric sort of bounding work. If you are doing gym work, make it fast movement just to almost wake the body up and let the body know, hey, we're going into battle tomorrow. So certainly whatever skill component you feel like you need to work on for me it's about making players feel good not necessarily a lot of tactics short sharp session with speed and, and okay so would would you encourage that in the captain's run at, at melbourne does it yes. is there some high intensity yeah 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 we do uh it's only sort of 25 minutes and and two of those drills are, are super quick and i include some some fun game sprint stuff in the warm-up with a bit of competition and then this one on the flip side the recovery so I think what recovery techniques do you believe are best for in-season performance? I think there there is there's some decent research, but there's a whole lot more anecdotal research about uh, movement through salt water. Um, so I know it's hard in Melbourne, but getting into the beach day after a game and moving around, there's you know, some, like I said, good research about sort of hydrostatic pressure that that creates rather than just sitting in an ice bath and I always tell my players when I was working with the Swans and, and Port Adelaide, we used to laugh at the pictures that you would see on Fox footy of players standing shin deep with jackets on and beanies on, you know, at St Kilda Baths. There is some benefit in that, but it is far more beneficial to be moving around and to be fully submerged, even just briefly. So I know it's hard, but for 10 minutes after a game, I really like that. Other recovery techniques, I really like things like float tanks, um, anything that can put you in a, a reduced stimulus environment, I think is is fantastic. And then it's whatever you believe works. So ice baths are good, but some players don't believe in it and find them really stressful, so we don't force that on them. Saunas have become becoming really, really popular. I quite like those. There's some good research around them as well as being quite a pleasant experience. So, yeah, there's a range there, but get in the beach. Yep, yep. Easy, yeah. It's free. Get in the beach. Exactly. Love it. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time, mate. We'll wrap it up with what are you most excited for for, for 2021? What's on the horizon? Uh, well, the D's are 7 and 0 at the moment, so I'm pretty excited by that. And, and yeah, I've been lucky enough to work with some, some teams uh, overseas and things like that. But what motivates me is not, not who you work for or, you know, whatever tracksuit. It's seeing young players in particular for me um, sort of achieve what you know their ultimate success and so uh, this Melbourne group has worked really hard and has been really sort of 
I won't say disrespected, but doesn't have the respect of the league because of what's happened in the past. And so I'm really enjoying seeing them get some respect and earn that respect. And and there is a super tight group from the players, from the staff. It's honestly, it's, it's a pleasure to go into work each day and work with the staff that we've got. So I'm really excited for for the staff to, to, to keep learning off the people that I'm working with, you know, Selwyn Griffiths, David Regan, Dave Watts, Daniel James, Brent Nicholson, Kathleen Skadashian and, you know, all these great people in the club. Beck Alcock, I've got to mention nutritionists because I'm very highly, so just great people. So long answer, but yeah, I'm really excited by the rest of the AFL season. Hopefully. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Well, thank you very much again, mate. I really appreciate you sharing your time, but also experiences and, and opening up with things that have worked, what didn't work, and really appreciate the, the stories as well. Yeah, no problem, Jack. Congrats on everything that you're doing, mate. It's awesome. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Darren. All the best for the rest of the season, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Jack. Cheers, mate. Well, that was fantastic, guys. Thank you for listening. If you missed the start or any part of that, make sure to watch back at the beginning. I will post that on my IGTV. That was a fantastic episode where Darren shared plenty of gems all the way through the last sort of 45 minutes. Make sure if you're not already subscribed to our community by clicking the link in our bio. From there, you'll get a free strength and conditioning program. And if you want to work with one of our coaches, you can head over to our website where you can check out our coach's bio and work with us either online or with face-to-face sessions to work on your technique. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and uh, YouTube. Thanks, guys.